While we are definitely blessed as a church to be able to work with Archa and see all the things that God is doing through the Crescent Project, and as we have people come, uh, missionaries that we support come to Prairie View and share what it is that God is doing in their lives, um, it should just be an encouragement to us that the finances that we send are being used uh, for God-honoring purposes. Uh, These aren't just random people. These are faces that live amongst us that we can get to know and we can hear their stories. And I pray that uh, that will just encourage you to be more mindful of how you can pray for the Crescent Project and pray for Archa and continue giving, continue uh, faithfully giving to our church. That way we can continue supporting missions like Archa's. I also want to thank you for attending um, Ald and Elder Christian Church today. Uh, it is great to have you. Um, so, yeah, good to have everyone here with uh, Paige's family. Um, and I want to thank our kids as well for being here for Kids City Sunday. It's really good to have the kids in here from time to time. It's kind of a shot in the arm to our worship services, I feel like, and it gives us some energy. Um, and thank you to the parents for doing that as well. Now, if you didn't know this, there is a pretty big football game later today. Uh, the Super Bowl is being played later. And Peyton Manning today is going to be the starting quarterback for the Denver Broncos. Now, when Olivia and I moved here from Cincinnati, we knew that Peyton Manning was going to be a pretty big deal. We knew that he was kind of an Indianapolis hero, but I think we underestimated just how much Peyton Manning is loved here. Um, even though he's been gone for two and a half years, even though for two and a half years there has been this great up-and-coming replacement with Andrew Luck, Peyton Manning is still a hero. People still love him. And, of course, part of the reason is that he does great things in the community, whether it's things like the Peyton Manning Children's Hospital or other charitable-type things or things just to make our community a better place. But if we're really honest with ourselves, the reason we love Peyton Manning is because he's a great football player. That's the real reason we love him. That's what it all comes down to. Now... You look at Peyton Manning, you look at the Colts, before they drafted him, they really didn't have much history here in Indianapolis. They had history in other cities, but not a ton here. They draft Peyton Manning, and he leads the team to winning every single year just about. They go to the playoffs almost every single year. They go to two Super Bowls. They win one of them. If not for Peyton Manning, Lucas Oil Stadium wouldn't be standing where it is today. So people love Peyton Manning, and rightfully so. He's a great football player, and he's just like his dad, Archie, another great football player. Now, a couple months ago, I found a documentary on TV called The Book of Manning, and it talked about this royal family of football. And it talked about how Archie had this great history in football and how all three of his sons, Peyton, Eli, and Cooper, Cooper's actually the oldest, they all wanted to be like Archie. They saw how great their dad was, and they wanted to be like him, and Peyton especially wanted to be like Archie. Peyton would listen to old radio broadcasts of Archie's games. He would watch old footage of Archie's games because he wanted to be just like him. Now, when you grow up like this, when you have a famous parent, there's always that risk of, well, what if your parent neglects you for the sake of this profession? They love football more than they love their family. Well, Archie never did that. Archie was always intentional about making sure that he paid attention to his kids. He was involved in his kids' lives. He loved his family, and he never let football get in the way of that. Now, you think about it. If Archie had let football get in the way of his family and the way of his kids, Peyton might not have wanted to be an NFL quarterback. 
he might have disdained the idea of being an NFL quarterback if it caused his dad to be a stranger. But his dad loved him. And his dad made sure that Peyton knew how much he loved him. Peyton saw the greatness of his father, but he also knew how much his father loved him. As a result, Peyton wanted to be like him. You know, I believe the same thing should be said of Christians. When we step back and we look at God, and we see the greatness of God, we see the love that God has for us, that should challenge us, and it should encourage us, and we should find our ultimate joy in being like our Father. When we realize that he has adopted us as our children, how could we not want to be like him? The same way Peyton wanted to be like Archie. That's where we're going to be today as we continue our Because He First Loved Us series, looking at the book of 1 John. We're going to pick up at the end of chapter 2, and then we're going to look at the first half of chapter 3. But before we do that, I'm going to open us up with a quick word of prayer, and then we'll get started in our text. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Thank you for the time that we have to come together to hear your word, to worship together, to take communion. God, thank you for the Crescent Project and everything that you're doing through that ministry and through Archa. And I pray that we can be a part of that, that we can continue partnering with them, not just by giving money, but by praying and by serving. So God, watch over that ministry. Thank you for our kids that are here today. And thank you for the fact that you have made us your children, that you have adopted us to be your sons and your daughters. And I pray that as we look at that, as we see how great you are and how your love for us is so abounding, I pray that it will just encourage us and motivate us even more and more to look like you, to imitate you, to have your love, to have your mercy, to have your patience, to have your justice, God. So thank you for this time we have together. We love you. We honor you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. 1 John is going to be located near the back of your Bible, just a few pages before Revelation. And if you don't have a Bible, we have some scattered throughout the room, so feel free to use one of those. And also, make sure you grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today if you don't own a Bible. So starting in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter three. See what kind of love the father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The first thing we see in this text is this reminder to abide. And we talked about that word last week. It means to remain, to be steadfast, to be constant, to be in close and settled union. And last week, John talked about abiding in the anointing that we have been given, abiding in the apostolic teaching, abiding in the word of God, abiding in the Holy Spirit that followers of Jesus are given. But this week, John shifts gears a little bit and he says, abide in Christ, settle in Christ, remain in Christ. 
And he gives one big reason for that in these few verses, and that's because Christ will appear again. After Jesus was crucified on the cross, after he rose from the grave, he spent some time doing some ministry and appearing to people here on earth, but then he ascended to be with God, and he's reigning at the right hand of God right now. But the apostles are told when he ascends that Jesus will return the same way they had seen him go. We haven't seen the last of Jesus. And despite what some televangelists say, we don't know when it will happen. We can't calculate when it's going to happen, but we know it's going to happen. And in the meantime, we're told to wait patiently and to wait expectantly for this time when Christ will return. And John says in this passage that there will be two main reactions when this moment comes, when Christ returns. And the first one is for God's children. This return will be a cause for celebration. Followers of Jesus are called to abide in Christ because they can have confidence when he returns. They are called to look forward to this day, to eagerly await it, to pray for this day to come and serve faithfully in the meantime until that moment comes. Because when Christ does come, God's children they get to see Christ in all his glory. John says that we will see Christ as he is. This past week in our small group, we were looking at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. And in that passage, we see John, late in his life, has this vision. And he has this vision of being in the presence of Christ. And he has this vision, and he sees this incredible image of Jesus, unlike anything he has ever seen before. And he remembered what Jesus looked like. He saw Jesus. He served with Jesus. He followed Jesus for three years. And yet this is totally different. When John sees Jesus, he falls down at his feet as if he's dead. He just passes out. And in the book of Revelation, he uses this incredible imagery, this vivid imagery to describe Jesus. John's probably got a lot of emotions running through his mind. There's probably some awe, there's probably some reverence, there's probably some respect, there's probably some fear. There's probably confusion as well. But then Christ reaches out and touches John and says, fear not, it's me, Jesus. And if you put yourself in John's shoes, think about what he's seeing. After decades of being away from Jesus, not having seen him for so long, he finally sees him again. And after all this time of serving God and suffering for Christ and doing this ministry through ups and downs, he finally sees Jesus and realizes that, you know what? All that service, all that suffering, all that pain, it was worth it. It was worth every second of it. Every minute of it was validated. And followers of Christ, we can look forward to that same thing. We can look forward to being with God, seeing Christ as he is, not seeing Jesus as the painting Jesus with really nice hair holding a sheep, not seeing Jesus as the thumbs up Jesus on the bumper sticker, but seeing Jesus as he truly is in all his power and all his glory and all his beauty. And that's what followers of Christ look forward to. We look forward to seeing the same Jesus that John saw, when we'll fall down and worship him and love him and fear him. Now, John doesn't only say that they will see Christ as he is in this passage. He says that they will truly be like him. 
You know, if you've been a follower of Christ for long, you've probably heard sermons and small group studies and lessons and seen different videos that talk about how, well, if you're a follower of Christ, you need to look like Christ. And people should be able to see Jesus through your words and through your deeds. And people should look at you and see what Jesus is like. But if you've been a follower of Christ for long, you also know that that's easier said than done. It's a lot harder than it sounds sometimes. If you've been a Christ follower of Christ for long, you know what it's like to deal with temptation. You know what it's like to struggle. You know what it's like to wrestle with sin. You have moments of success overcoming lust, but then your eye wanders for just a second. And you feel like all that progress is gone. You finally seem like you're getting over that drinking problem, but then that one stressful day of work comes and you fall backwards. And you're frustrated and you're angry and you're stressed and you're ready to just give up and just give in. You're fed up with this battle that you're fighting. And we look forward to that day when Jesus returns, when we'll see him because we can finally be like him. The sin that we wrestle with, the sin that sometimes wins in the battle that we fight, it won't win ultimately. We look forward to the day that we will be like Jesus. And we have confidence in that day, not because of what we've done, not because of how great we are, but we have confidence because of how great Christ is and what he has done. Now, unfortunately, John also says that the appearing of Christ won't be good news for everyone. For some, it will be cause for mourning. It will be cause for mourning because there are many people out there who do not know Christ and they'll have to answer For their sin. John tells people that they can have confidence before God, but it's through Christ. And if you don't have Christ, then you're going to sink back in shame. You know, a couple weeks ago when Joshua preached, he talked about the word propitiation, this big theological word. And the word propitiation is the idea of a sacrifice that takes away wrath, an atoning sacrifice. And in that passage that Joshua preached on, John says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. That he takes the punishment that we deserve. He dies the death that we should die to pay the debt that we could never pay. But for those who don't know Christ, for those who do not trust him as Lord and Savior, that debt will have to be paid, whether Christ pays it or they pay it. Does that make you uncomfortable? The idea of people having to pay the debt of their own sin, because if it doesn't, it should. It should make us incredibly uncomfortable that the people who work in the cubicle next to us may have to pay that debt. It should make us incredibly uncomfortable that the guy we see walking his dog every day may have to pay that debt. It should make us incredibly uncomfortable that maybe even our own parents who don't know Christ They'll have to pay that debt. They'll have to answer for their sin. That's why we are given the challenge and why we're given the responsibility to make Jesus known to the world. We're called to make him known through our words and through our deeds, through what we say, through what we do. Because after all, if all this stuff is true, if all this stuff about Christ being the propitiation for our sins of sin being a debt that has to be paid, that we can't pay on our own, if all this stuff is true, if we really believe it, 
then not sharing Christ with someone is the cruelest punishment that we could ever give them. John says that Jesus will appear again. For God's children, that's a source of hope. But for those who don't know Christ, that'll be a source of mourning. That'll be a source of shame. So in the meantime, we look forward to that return. And we share Christ with all who will listen. Because that's just what God's children do. Now, we've seen that phrase a couple times now, children of God. And we talked a couple weeks ago about how in our pop culture theology of the day, we like to say that, you know, everyone is God's child. And that's partially true. Everyone is created by God. Everyone has inherent value and inherent worth is incredibly precious in the eyes of God. In that sense, it's true. But in another sense, not everyone is a child of God. Not everyone can truly call God their father because it's only through Christ that you can really call God your father. So the question needs to be asked, who are God's children? Who gets to call God father? Well, first things first, God's children are undeserving sinners. God's children are not people who meet all the right prerequisites. God's children are not people who are born into the right family at the perfect time. God's children are not people who just happen to mail in all the paperwork in time before everybody else could. That's not what it means to be a child of God. A child of God is an undeserving sinner. Paul in Romans says that the only way one can be justified in the eyes of God is by faith. It's not about what family you're born to. It's not about following all the right rules. It's not about proving how worthy you are. In fact, being a child of God... Is just the opposite. God's children are those who realize just how unworthy they are. And yet, in spite of their unworthiness, in spite of their flaws, in spite of their imperfections, they are loved by God. A Scottish church leader named Isaac Watts, he said, Behold the amazing gift of love the Father hath bestowed on us, the sinful sons of men, to call us sons of God. The idea of being children of God only finds its power when we understand who we are without God. When we understand what it means to be a slave, what it means to be an orphan. And only through Christ can slaves become sons. Only through Christ can daughters become, can orphans become daughters rather. Only through Christ can enemies become friends. Only Christ can do this. If you want to be a son of God, if you want to be a child of God, a daughter of God, Christ is the way. Christ is what makes it happen. That's what matters. Not only are God's children undeserving sinners who realize just how unworthy they are, God's children are bought with a price. This past week, I did a little bit of research on the cost of what it takes to adopt a child these days. And domestically, it could be about $7,000, which maybe isn't a ton of money, but it's still no small chunk of change either. But then if you want to adopt internationally, it could be up to $40,000. And that's not including a lot of various costs, a lot of miscellaneous costs that get entered into the picture. That doesn't count the emotional stress and the mental stress that comes with adoption, all the travel. We hear that and we think, Gosh, that is just way too expensive. No wonder all these poor kids can't get adopted. It just costs 
too much. Well, the cost of our adoption into the family of God was way more than $40,000. It was way more than just money. The cost of our adoption is God's son. God's son's blood. His broken body. A perfect sacrifice dying on a cross for you and for me. That's how much it costs for us to be a part of God's family. If that doesn't humble us, I don't know what does. And then finally, the fourth thing about God's children. God's children are striving to be like him. You know, we like the first three. We can kind of admit that, yeah, you know, I'm not perfect. And yeah, I'm not really worthy all the time. And then we hear that we were incredibly valuable, that a high cost was paid for us. And we think, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty, pretty valuable, apparently. But then we get to this one. And this one makes us squirm a little bit. The idea of striving to be like God. This is what God's children do. We think it sounds harsh. We think it sounds legalistic. But Jesus says the same thing. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 17. Jesus says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus does not leave a lot of gray area here. He doesn't really give a lot of middle ground. He says you're either a healthy tree producing healthy fruit or you're a diseased tree producing diseased fruit. There's no mediocre trees. There's no average trees. You're either healthy or you're diseased. Which one are you? That's the point that Jesus is getting at. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. And Jesus doesn't give a lot of in-between. Now, that being said, acting like God does not make someone his child. Because there are good and generous and caring and moral people out there who do not know Christ. There are people who are making our world a better place to live who do not know Christ. People that are contributing to society, but that does not make them a child of God. Because our actions don't make us children of God. Our actions are an indicator that we already are children of God. You know, Javen is Olivia and I's first child, and so... We're still kind of learning a lot of this as we go, learning on the fly what it means to be a parent. And we're starting to enter this phase now where Javen imitates us. And that's kind of scary. You know, I like to think that maybe there are some good things he can learn from us. I mean, we're not terrible people. But at the same time, there are some things that I don't want Javen to learn from us. A few weeks ago, when the Colts were playing the Patriots in the playoffs, Andrew Luck threw one of way too many interceptions. And I thought the Colts were going to get back into the game. I thought they were making a game of it. Andrew Luck throws this interception, and I'm standing in front of the TV in our living room, and I just go, and then we look down, and Javen goes, and I thought to myself, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, what are we getting ourselves into? But, you know, Javen did that because he's my son. Javen did that because he's my child. There are other kids somewhere out there who probably did the same thing when they saw Andrew Luck throw that interception. But that doesn't mean they're my child. That doesn't make them my child. Javen did that because he already is my child. 
He saw me. He imitated me. In the same way, God's children, we look at God. We know that he is our father. We know that Christ has saved us from our sins, and thus we imitate him. And we're foolish to believe that if we can somehow do enough things, perform enough actions to force God to adopt us. That's not how it works. We are children of God, and thus we act like it, not the other way around. Pick back up in our passage, 1 John chapter 3, reading in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John closes out by saying again, until Christ appears, you as God's children, me as a child of God, we should strive to imitate our father. And the first step that John says about this is understanding the weight and the gravity of our sin and fleeing from it. John does not mince words here. He says that sin is lawlessness. He says that sin is active rebellion. Sin, when we compromise with sin as followers of Jesus, as children of God, John says that we're basically partnering up with Satan. Pretty rough words here. Pretty black and white terminology, but John tends to do that. He makes it clear in hopes that we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, would refuse to make a practice of sin, would refuse to compromise with sin, would refuse to entertain sin in our lives. Now, does this mean that John expects his audience to be perfect? Do we need to never sin again? No. It's not realistic. If you look in the mirror, you'll realize that's not realistic. But the idea is this. Don't make a practice of sinning. Don't continue sinning. Don't live in sin. Always be vigilant against your sin. Sometimes we look at our lives and we see sins that we've wrestled with and sins that we've struggled with. And we say, you know what? This is just who I am. This is just one of my issues. This is just one of my quirks. So... What can you do about it? And we give up. We stop fighting. We give up the battle against our sin. And John says, no, never be content to let sin dwell in you. You might not be perfect. You might continue fighting that battle against that one little sin in your life for the rest of your life. You might have battles that you lose. But never give up fighting. Never give in. Never compromise with sin. Never be okay with it. It's the idea that John is getting at. The good news is that when we do fall short, which we will, we trust in God's grace. This past week, Javen, 
Man, I'm using him up today for sermon illustrations. Javen, he drew a picture, actually he colored a picture. This is Captain Hook that he colored. And some of you may look at this and say, you know, that's a pretty good little picture that Javen drew. He's a, he's a young kid. That's all right. There's stickers on it. That's good, too. I look at it, and quite frankly, I think it's horrible. I, I, I mean, I really do. He didn't stay in the lines. He had very poor choice of colors. There's like a booger probably like halfway on it. It just looks horrible, in my opinion. It is a bad drawing. It is not what I would define as a work of art. But you know what? I love it. Because Javen is my son. It's not perfect. It's not great. It's not the best drawing in the world, but I love it anyway because I love my son even when he falls short. Even when he messes up. And that's part of the beauty of being a child of God. No longer expecting perfection. No longer walking on eggshells every single time we make one little mistake and putting on our helmets just in case a piano falls on us or something because God wants to punish us. That's not the life we live as God's children. We know that our Father loves us, even when we fall short. But in the meantime, we imitate him. We strive to be like him. But not only do we strive to be like him, not only do we flee from sin, we fall more in love with him. I once heard a counselor in Bible college say, you know, if you're struggling with lust, the answer to that is not just quitting cold turkey. That's part of it. It's not just putting up safeguards, although that's a part of it, too. Part of dealing with the sin of lust is falling more in love with your spouse. That's the real answer. In the same way as we deal with sin, let's fall more in love with God. Let's see what he's done for us. Let's remember what Christ has done for us. Running from sin, striving to be like him, but more importantly, following, falling more in love with him. As we remember what Christ has done for us. John says that Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil to no longer make a practice of sinning. But then we look in the mirror and we say, now, wait a minute. If Jesus destroyed the works of the devil, then why do I wrestle with sin so much to this day? Why do I look in the world and I see a messed up and scary place? If Jesus has really won, it sure doesn't look like it. Well, one more football illustration, since it is Super Bowl Sunday. Have you ever heard of playoff spoilers? A playoff spoiler is a team that is eliminated from the playoffs. They can't win the championship, and yet sometimes that's when they play their best football because their goal is to just cause havoc and just cause chaos. Even though they can't win, even though they've already been eliminated, they look to cause problems. Satan is kind of like that. Satan knows he hasn't won. Satan knows that God has won, that he has already been defeated, he has already been eliminated, but that doesn't mean that Satan's not going to cause chaos. It doesn't mean that Satan's not going to cause havoc. It doesn't mean that we no longer have to wrestle with sin. But we do it knowing that God has won. We do it knowing what Christ has done. And we do it knowing that we trust in a Father who shows us grace, in a Father who loves us. You know, one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture, even if you're not a Christian, you may have heard this story or this term, the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, this young guy goes to his father and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance, which indirectly is effectively saying, Dad, I wish you would just hurry up and die. That way I could get my money. So the father reluctantly agrees. He gives his inheritance to the son and the son goes out and he blows it. 
He blows it on stupid stuff. He goes out and he parties. He goes crazy. And at one point, he hits rock bottom. He realizes that he blew through the inheritance. He has nowhere to go. His family has probably disowned him. So what does he decide? He decides that, you know what? My best bet is to crawl back to dad. My best bet, even though I don't deserve to be a son anymore, even though I'm unworthy of being a son, is to go back to him. And look at what the son says when he realizes just how much he's messed up. He says he's no longer worthy to be called his father's son. And you know, honestly, he's right. He isn't worthy to be called his father's son. After what he did, no. He doesn't deserve to be this man's son. He might as well be a stranger to this guy. But look at how the father responds. He gives his son a robe. He gives him a ring. He gives him new shoes. He throws a party. The father celebrates the fact that he and this son are no longer alienated. They're father and son again. He's no longer just a rebel. He's no longer just an orphan. He's no longer just a kid who took advantage of the guy and then flew the coop. They're father and son again. The relationship is reconciled. Now today, if you're not a follower of Christ, I hope you'll take a look in the mirror. I hope that you'll realize that you and the prodigal son have a lot in common. That you're chasing after something. You're trying to find happiness in something. You're trying to find fulfillment in something. And guess what? It isn't there. The fulfillment that you get from being a child of God is greater than any other fulfillment you could possibly reach for. Be a a child of God again. Become a son again. Become a daughter again. Don't just be a rebel. Don't be an enemy anymore. Don't be alienated anymore. Through Christ, God the Father, he will accept you. He will embrace you. He'll put a robe on you. He'll put shoes on you. He'll celebrate the fact that you have returned, even though you've done some incredibly horrible things. Even though you've messed up big time. And if you are a follower of Christ... John's challenge in the passage is pretty clear. If you're a child of God, act like it. If you're a child of God, show it. If you're a child of God, prove it. Imitating your father should be the ultimate source of joy in your life. The same way Peyton found joy in imitating Archie, we should find joy in imitating God, our father. We trust in grace when we fall short. We flee from sin. We fall more in love with God every single day, and we strive to imitate him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that you have destroyed the works of the devil, even though there can still be the remnants of sin. There can still be havoc and chaos in our lives. God, we know that ultimately you've won. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that our role as as son and daughter, our identity as a son and daughter of you, is not just based on our actions. It's not just based on proving how worthy we are. It's not based on meeting all the right prerequisites. It's based on your grace. It's based on what your son Jesus has done, his broken body and his shed blood. And God, I pray that those who don't know you as father, those who don't know Christ, they would come to you, that they would return to you the way the prodigal son returned to his father, knowing that you'll embrace them. 
God, they don't have to be slaves anymore. They don't have to be enemies anymore. They don't have to be orphans anymore. They can be sons and daughters of the king. And God, for those of us who do know your son Jesus, who are your children, I pray that we will imitate you. Not for the sake of proving how great we are, not for the sake of gaining accolades from other people who think that we're just so perfect and so holy, but rather for your glory. God, let us share who you are with the world around us. God, we love you. We honor you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to make that decision to become a follower of Christ, to become a son, become a daughter of God, talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the side of the room. As Joshua mentioned, we are going to have a baptism here in just a few minutes. Scott's going to sing one more song for us along with the worship team. Feel free to go grab your kids. Feel free to uh, run and get a refill of coffee, run to the restroom, and then feel free to make it back in here for Paige's baptism. We hope that you'll celebrate that with us.